if there's one thing that traditionally our our breed of optometry people has been really good at, it's relationship building. I mean, that's why we as primary eye care providers build that trusted relationship with our patients. Our profession attracts that type of individual personalized attention and good, usually very good communication skills. You know, the other thing, Chris, that was really hard, I think, about this legislative uh, bat- I say battle with the students was that they were jazzed about scope. I mean, I got them to do just about anything for scope. And then we were like, managed care. And they were like, what do those words mean? I was like, vision plans. Things are just really not good. And let's fix this. And it was far more of an explanation. And they were like, okay, what is a vision plan doing? It's so egregious, you know? And so we really had to do a lot of education. Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Jennifer Deakins and Dr. Tommy Lucas. We discussed the new Texas legislation that was recently passed related to non-covered services and managed vision care plans. And I think the most important thing within this is just the effort that it took to get this done. It is not an easy task and it is not something that you can achieve without pretty significant grassroots effort. So please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. My patients with macular degeneration want clear and succinct recommendations from me related to products and solutions that can benefit their long-term ocular health and vision. To do this for my patients, I need to be confident that what I'm recommending will have a benefit to them. And that's why my supplement of choice is MacuHealth. MacuHealth is specifically formulated and clinically proven to rebuild and maximize macular pigment over a lifetime. This results in enhanced visual performance and aids in the treatment and prevention of age-related macular degeneration. I've discussed carotenoid absorption on this podcast with Dr. Nolans and Stringham, and MacuHealth uses a patented process called micromycel technology. And this technology is clinically proven to increase carotenoid concentrations at the target tissue and deliver the highest level of bioavailability studied to date. MacuHealth has been great for my patients. And we really feel like we have the ability to help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. If you're not utilizing MacuHealth for your patients, Check it out for yourself by contacting your MacuHealth representative. The most common questions I get include, what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to build with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be built together and what can't? And my favorite, how do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote-unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients, and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education, for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. Obviously, thanks for taking your time to come on and record about this. But two, thanks for taking your time and all the efforts that have gone on in Texas for years and years. Tommy, you, I mean, actually, Jen and Tommy, you and I go back a long ways. Uh, I mean, I think, Tommy, when when I first met you on SGRC, um, you guys in Texas were really trying to revamp your grassroots. And what I think you learned on SGRC, and you know this, um, but what I, I learned was, you know, everybody, every state thinks they have their thing. You know, every state thinks that they're so unique compared to other states. And the reality is, is there's probably... Well, there is probably something that makes them unique, 
but everybody has a unique thing that they've got a hurdle that's going to make it hard for them. So first, um, we had John here today to talk mostly about um, your recent uh, insurance act that that was uh, was signed into law. But two, I want to I want to kind of talk a little bit about what you have done over the last like seven to ten years to really build your network because. I'll tell you, you know, a lot of people think that insurance is an easier thing to pass than like scope of practice. And Jen, I see you nodding your head no, and I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's it's probably a bigger animal to uh, to uh, take down than scope of practices. So I'll pause there, Tommy. I'll let you start out just because uh, because you kind of yeah. helped build this this grassroots effort and uh, talk about what it takes to to do that in a big state like Texas. Yeah, Chris, uh, uh, glad to be on with you today. It's uh, It's been a minute since we've been able to catch up. But uh, like you said, we, you and I kind of came up together a little bit uh, in our in our advocacy uh, efforts uh, serving on SGRC uh, together with AOA. And I guess uh, they put us on that committee because we were really active in our or respective states <laughs> at For that me, time. Was, and uh, kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've done a lot in your home state. And of course, we got started with this project. Uh, I think I became ledge chair in like 2010 or 2011, um, somewhere. Right. Actually, that's not true. We were um, we were at the Capitol at, in 2011, kind of learning a little bit. And then I th- think I became ledge chair in Texas in 2012. So, uh, so you're right. It's been 10, 11 years of consistent effort now. And uh, like you said, uh, we were in kind of, uh, I guess, in a lull in Texas in terms of our kind of grassroots organization at the time. Uh, we had a lot of um, leadership that are mentors to me and Jen that had kind of been through all the scope fights and everything like that before us. And, you know, those those fights take a lot out of you and you kind of move on in your, your career and move on to other things. So uh, Texas was looking for kind of a new generation of political leadership at the time and um, uh, Jen and I both share a mentor that has been on this podcast before, uh, Dr. D- Dr. Joe Deloach. And, uh, he, uh, kind of, uh, found me and found Jen and got us involved in TOA, uh, and, uh, the rest is history. So we've been, uh, kind of mounting a grassroots campaign ever since then, passing a lot of legislation and making sure that our doctors and our patients are, um, uh, uh, treated fairly and have access to optometric care. Yeah, I think um, I think that's the key. That as you're as you're kind of getting into like me into the middle of your career, you're starting to have to look for other people. I mean, Jen, you're right with us, and you know you're starting to try to identify other people who can kind of succeed us. So, so tell me your process with that, Jen. Yeah, I think Tommy's right. We had to revitalize because we had uh, sort of the old guard and the leadership who had had beaten the ground for so long. And it took, I took notes from Tommy in that grassroots is as much personal relationships as anything else we do. So the complexity of the legislative process is murky and and intense. And so our grassroots network had to trust us and it takes work every single day to make sure that we are communicating with those key contacts and the larger membership body so that when we take a call to action, they trust that it's the right thing and they don't have to digest a 40 page bill to know that those merits are there to know it's good for their practice and good for their patients. And so that's what we tried to do. We try to be, I I really respect you, Chris, and the way that you've always communicated very honestly, very openly and very sincerely. And I think that some of the great leadership in our profession does that. So we try to be real open and real honest. Um, I had a tough round when I first came in as legislative chair. So Tommy was like, this is hard and I need, you know, some help. So let's be two arms of the same person. And my first ledge session was a failure at the scope bill. I mean, it was a hard failure and we had to come back from that. And we had our grassroots just convinced we were going to pass that bill. And then we had to revitalize again for the next scope fight, which we were successful and we were really proud of. We built on that grassroots momentum. And then as, you know, as, interesting as the next battle was for managed care and insurance laws, it it spoke to different people in our grassroots network, but we didn't lose the momentum. I was scared of that because scope is sort of this really enticing, um, you know, issue legislatively. 
and we all like to talk about it and it's a really hot topic and it can get a little more dry in the managed care land, but we were able to really hone in and you're right. The managed care fight is wholly different. I felt like it was harder in many ways because there were just endless amounts of resources and money that these multi-billion dollar conglomerates can throw at the battle. And it was more one-on-one with scope. And even though we didn't have endless coffers of of PAC money to do it, what we had was a resilience in our doctors and a tenacity that the grassroots would not give up no matter what. And a belief in the process, a belief in the TOA, and really, um, you know, harnessing those individual relationships we had built over seven, eight or 10 years. It, it's hard, Jen, because when you have a, a defeat like that right away, you know, you you worked really hard. I remember talking to you. Well, actually, I remember in the in that boardroom, uh, Tommy, Jen. I mean, and I, you know, we were re- remote, and it was almost like this, um, uh, this like come to Jesus sort of moment where you're just like, well, holy cow, we didn't we didn't have what we thought we had. You know, we didn't have the relationships we thought we had. We didn't, we couldn't trust the people that we thought we could trust. And um, to see that you went through that early on and, and, and you had this resiliency of pushing through, I'll tell you, that's really unique and it's very hard to, to do. So congratulations, Jen, to you and also to Tommy to, to kind of not letting it go and seeing the bigger picture and moving forward with what you learned. Um, and so tell me about that process a little bit. So, you know, the, you, my recollection, and this was years ago now, but my recollection was that, that the relationships that you had were not what you thought they were. And some of the people that were in key positions related to uh, in the Senate and in the House, uh, and, and maybe was the governor involved too? I, I can't remember. You could tell that story. But, but there, was, there were these key people that, 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 that you thought you had um, good relationships with and turns out that we didn't, we didn't have those relationships. And so um, you can elaborate a little bit more on that if you'd like, but, but the other thing is, how did you overcome it? Like, I know that there was trust that was built and that's very important, but there, there's one thing to say, I trust Jen, I trust Tommy, they're gonna do great work, I'll follow them. And then there's another where I trust Jen, I trust Tommy, they're gonna do great work and I can't let them be alone. What did you do to get there? Yeah, um, it's complicated uh, because politics is complicated, right? And, you know, you think your relationships are one thing and you think your grassroots uh, relationships in a a random Senate district or a random House district are strong and unbreakable. And then reality sets in at the Capitol and those particular politicians have relationships with the other side as well. And uh, so it comes down to, yeah, our doctor may think they have a super strong relationship, but the way that it works is behind the scenes, complicated, um, horse trading. So, and, you know, people, people down there in Austin will, you know, even trade on their own friends without their knowledge. Uh, and that kind of stuff happens all the time. So, you know, politics is kind of like an art form. Um, sometimes it's described as a dark art and you kind of got to know, you know, who's who's your real friend and who's not your real friend. And sometimes your real friend is not your real friend. And, uh, yeah, it's complicated. So that's where having like a professional um, organized group like like we've been able to, you know, gather in Texas uh, pays dividends. Because in addition to our, you know, 181 key contacts to our 181 legislators, you know, we have a, uh, a super professional lobby team. Uh, I would stack our lobby team up against uh, anybody's team in Texas. Uh, our TOA staff is just there to support us constantly. Our ledge committee is just, you know, hundreds of years of combined experience in politics. And you really have to kind of think about the chessboard of what's going on down there under the under the dome and uh, realize that, you know, it's a process and that as you go through that process, there's a thousand ways to kill a bill and there's only one way to pass a bill and you have to overcome every single one of those hurdles. So we go into every session, you know, when we go into a session, we're really planning for that session two years in advance. Like as we speak right now, we're planning, Jen and I are planning for two years from now about what will be 
um, going forward and trying to accomplish. So the project for scope and the project for insurance started a decade ago uh, when we first passed our first bill that was kind of like our organizational bill, if you will, like of regathering our grassroots mobility and strength and, you know, seeing what we could accomplish against a political machine that is Texas politics, which is big money, big egos, that well, kind I of think stuff. That's, so. that's key too is, and Jen, you, you can elaborate on that a little bit more, but I wanted to jump in and just to say that, you know, in some cases, like in Nebraska, for example, we have a unicameral. Everybody knows that, that that's heard me talk. We have a unicameral, 49 senators. So you have a filibuster proof bill. We, well, actually, you have you have a veto and filibuster proof bill, essentially with thirty four votes, uh, and so so you you can you, it, it, you can think great, we can do anything. But what you're describing is like okay, well, all we need is forty, all we need is thirty three, thirty four really good relationships because we want to have a little bit extra, right? So, okay, thirty four really good relationships, but um, but we only have in Nebraska we have probably 275 members in our association that you think, okay, well, we only have this many people and we've got, you know, 275, but you know, Texas has how many, um, how many optometrists? Pushing 5,000. We're like 4,700, almost 5,000 docs. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you take, then you take the number of active um, docs in there or, or docs that are members of the association or maybe dues paying members of the association. And then you have the uh, active ones that are that are more active than paying dues. And so that 181 slots, it, it seems like, well, 5,000 totally we can manage 181, but it, it is not, it, it's not that easy. And so, uh, Jen, kind of elaborate a little bit on that about how you how you pare down and know which which key contact is going to be uh, an effective yeah. key contact and the one that you want to pair up with them. Yeah, it's it's a great challenge and um, one that we're proud to have worked very hard on. And one thing before I comment on how we did it, the mechanics, it's become even more complex in the political landscape that we have now and the very partisan politics that have played out. So we've even had key contacts come to us and say, look, I'm having a tough time. I don't agree with the social politics of this guy or that gal. And um, it's making it more challenging day by day. But I'm still proud of our doctors who are true to their their roots as an optocrat. And we try to raise that in the early generations. You know, my I interact with students every day in my day job. And I try to explain to them very early on that, that our issues cut through that partisan politics. And that was demonstrated very well by our insurance, um, you know, legislation that was went through just recently and that we had we garnered support from both sides and scope as well. But how we mechanically do it has become more sophisticated over the years. We used to sort of pull up Google Maps and pull all the zip codes and whatever district and, oh, that guy, do you know that one? You know that one? And they're really great and they're really good. And I've seen them show up to stuff. And now we still do that somewhat, but we have, um, there's uh, Dr. Adam Parker out of Virginia created this incredible grassroots system called KP Dashboard. It's created by an optometrist for optometry. And Tommy and I have harnessed that and I, I just love it. I'm on it every day communicating with my docs and I can pull up a district by the stuff that he's uploaded and I can put out a message saying, who knows this candidate who's running? Do you go to church with them? Do you have, are you in the PTA with them? Uh, do your kids, you know, play soccer with them? And we find more inherent relationships that way a lot of times, or just somebody steps up and says, I'm willing who wouldn't otherwise have done so. And so we can text and email them um, at the touch of our fingertips. And so it's been really efficient. And then all that is all that knowledge and all that relationship knowledge is stored in a database for our future. I mean, we, we can't do this forever. <laughs> we got to find our next people too, eventually. So they'll have that knowledge that we've garnered and everything we've recorded uh, interactions between doctors and legislators um, for the future. And I think that'll be an enduring legacy, hopefully that we can leave. I think, I think you meant, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, KP. Go ahead, Tommy. I, I was just going to add that that uh, you know KP dashboard was a game changer for us in terms of organization, and uh, you know without that software, we were using twenty spreadsheets of you know sort of accurate information, and it was just really difficult to coordinate in any meaningful way. So you know now we're able to reach all of our doctors, all of our key contacts uh, at the touch of a button, and uh, 
that really uh, we we deployed it in our very first or our scope fight where we failed the first time, uh, and then we um, as we became more and more proficient and uh, kind of power users of KP dashboard, it, it's propelled us to our. I think that's a really sense. good plug for KP Dashboard and for what the work that Adam Parker has done because we, we use it as well. And I think it's a very powerful tool, but it's not going to do the job for you. And uh, and I think your your point, Jen, is for those who are using KP Dashboard, it's, it is you're using it on a daily basis or a very regular basis to keep up with what's going on in all the different legislative districts that upload information so everybody knows what's going on. But it's not going to do your job, but it, it is a great tool to help facilitate the efforts that you both have to go through in order to do that. One of the points that, that I think is interesting, Tommy, on, on, a recent, um, on a recent SGRC call that I, I was kind of staggered back a little bit by, but the, um, was that, uh, that there was a state that had a um, very, uh, very, well-known legislator who had quite a bit of political clout within the state and the students. Um, and, and so and they were going to carry their scope bill. And this is to your point, Jen, about optocrats is, uh, is I have very strong, very strong personal uh, beliefs about certain things. And, um, and yet I can try to find common ground with legislators where those beliefs differ, but the students were almost in a boycott against the association because they viewed the beliefs of the sponsor of their scope bill, somebody who is out there going to go to battle for your profession, as uh, unacceptable to carry their bill. And I thought, holy cow, like, put everything else aside. Now, maybe maybe there are some things, and I think there, there might be. There probably are some things that are more important. But the reality is, is unless you are, are going to be able to remove that, that politician or, or figure out a way to circumvent that politician. Somebody that has a lot of political clout that also uh, believes in the profession that you might differ on something else with that is going to be completely inconsequential to what is going to happen in the legislature on this specific year. I, couldn't, I just couldn't believe the things that I was hearing that, that the students were doing. I was like, this is, this is not good. Uh, so how yeah. do you come? How do you get over that? What's the message that you that you do to get over that? So we we encounter it a lot right now, and the way that we've tried to see it is just shaping the conversation and harnessing that energy because they have very passionate beliefs, and so we try to temper the current political climate of our state with, hey, you guys have a fire in your belly, and let's let's put that energy towards getting the person elected that you make that friend early. You want somebody elected in that position, go fight for them. You know, don't fight against us as the TOA and what we're doing, but go fight for that person. Because if they're a viable candidate, then they are going to know that you supported them from the very beginning. So that's really what we're trying to do in Texas. And I think it's working and we're planning some student forms for the fall where we bring in both, you know, D and R legislators to talk about the reality of yeah, the campaign season is, you know, pretty ugly and political. But often when you're making the laws that matter to Texas businesses or Texas, some of Texas healthcare and, and different things, we cut through some of that partisan stuff. So I think if they hear from the legislators themselves, that helps too. And so we have a PR firm that we employed that's going to bring some of those guys in and, and do some forums with the students because we've got two optometry schools in Texas. And so it's very important to us that, that they have that exposure early on and that we, um, that we guide that mindset. And I, I think it's getting there. I, we see people mostly responsive. Would you say, Tommy? Yeah, yeah. The you know the political discourse in our country now is you know in our faces twenty four seven. So uh, you know everyone's got an opinion, and the the folks that uh, kind of used to be in the middle on things have kind of gravitated one direction or the other. So uh, that's leaked into you know what what you would call special interest politics or or uh, you know advocacy efforts for a group like ours, and uh, it's difficult uh, to be honest. But you know I think almost everyone has some type of aha moment when it comes to politics. And what I mean by that is like, you finally understand how politics really works. And uh, like, if you're there to advocate for, you know, 
a, a cultural issue or one of the big kind of topics that's out there, that's one thing. If you're there talking about um, like, you know, you know, local issues or professional issues or things that impact your, your livelihood, you know, that's, you kind of have to separate that from that, that bigger picture and understand that um, the politicians down there are multifaceted folks, you know, they're getting elected in their primaries generally, you know, by saying and believing certain things. But when you get down there, they're dealing with random issues about, you know, infrastructure and water and, you know, um, you know, things that are actually important to society, you know, beyond, just like what you would see kind of like the, the cultural type stuff. So, uh, but it's, it's hard to overcome, but you have to kind of like get those folks to understand that, Hey, this particular person, uh, and we've gone through this, you know, we, we pick strong sponsors that are strong for a reason, you know, because they've, they've amassed power in some, some way. And, uh, but, but they're also, you know, out there on, a, on a lot of cultural issues. So you really have to kind of like, kind of separate that and, you know, get your young folks to understand that, Hey, you know, you still have to be an optocrat when it comes to this. I know you don't like this particular stance or what you've heard from this, this politician, but, um, you know, uh, you're never going to have a perfect political candidate that aligns with your beliefs 100%. So you got to kind of lose that. I think Jen, you said it really well is, um, and I want to highlight this point is, you know, it only really matter like it only makes a difference when you're when you're behind the eight ball like if 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 you if you have very strong political beliefs right which i do um then i'm going to work the heck out of people uh, for campaigns that for people that i have that belief like like i share those those beliefs with i share those political positions with and then if if i if there's somebody else in my same district that has a, an opposing political belief for the opposing side, then somebody's going to win, right? And ultimately, either they get their their guy in or I get my guy in. But we have the relationship, and and it's not. And, and and so now you're talking about building the relationship from the ground up, and you're and you're helping people who you who you really want in general from a political standpoint in general that also now has a relationship with an optometrist that they're going to listen to when they, when they have been, when they need insight about eye care issues. And so I think yeah. that's the, that's the message that needs to really resonate is like, look, you might not like the sponsor of this bill, but if you don't like the sponsor of this bill, then guess what? There's, there's 180 other legislators that need to be elected. And there's probably somebody in two to four years that need to, that are going to run against them. So find somebody you really like and work for them. And then, you know, we still have other people that, that have opposing beliefs outside of optometry. And if we've got somebody working for them as well, then we, you know, then optometry wins either way and our patients win either way. And so I think that's the, that's the message is a lot of times we're coming to the game too late. So we're trying to be picky on the people that we're having as opposed to like, we just want relationships. Like all we need is a relationship. You can worry about all that other stuff that matters, right? That might really matter. Uh, to you personally, and it, and it might really be a big deal personally, and also politically across the country, uh, or in your state, but that's okay. Because uh, if you've built the relationship early, then then that's what matters. That's the really important yeah. thing. And, and so anyway, I think that's the that's the message I get. And I think you ha you hammered it, Jen, is, is that, um, look, focus those efforts to get the people that you want elected, because they align with your beliefs in general, and they'll all when they align with your beliefs in general. If you if you if you have a relationship with them, they will listen to you once once they're elected. Yeah. Right? They're going to take yeah. your because they're going to want your insight because you know more than they do about that. Yeah, and I think if there's one thing that traditionally our our breed of optometry people has been really good at, it's relationship building. I mean, that's why we as primary eye care providers build that trusted relationship with our patients. Our profession attracts that type of individual personalized attention and good, usually very good communication skills. You know, the other thing, Chris, that was really hard, I think, about this legislative um, bat I say battle with the students was that they were jazzed about scope. I mean, I got them to do just about anything for scope. And then we were like, managed care. And they were like, what do those words mean? I was like, vision plans things are just really not good and let's fix this. And it was far more of an explanation. And they were like, 
okay, what is vision plan doing that's so egregious, you know? And so we really had to do a lot of education, not really to our doctors, because I think that even whatever mode of practice you're in, it really matters to you. You're interfacing with the vision plan managed care world in so many ways. And because we had taken scope forefront for six, seven, eight years, those managed care issues had bottled up for us and, you know, in Texas. And so we took note of that over time and it was such a comprehensive package. It was, we carefully explained it to our students. They got on board, we explained it to our doctors, and now we're explaining the implementation phase of that, which is just as complex as the bill itself and setting realistic expectations. But Tommy and I believe that, I don't want to overstate it, but it really may define the survival in Texas of independent practice. And I don't mean just private practice. We mean the independent judgment of doctors, patient choice in their who they go to as their eye doctor, access to good doctors all across the state. So it was really pivotal legislation for us. Getting young presbyopes in progressive lenses can be tough, but it doesn't have to be. Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses are an introductory solution for emerging presbyopes, and they're available in select ad powers. This lens provides an all-in-one balanced vision solution for an accessible and great first-time progressive lens wearing experience. Learn more about Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses and get free resources to help start the progressive lens conversation with your young presbyopes at slorepro.com slash Verilux. I want to discuss the Myday Toric contact lens for a minute. When I'm reaching for a daily lens for my patients, I need to know that it will be available in parameters that I want and it needs to work. This improves my chair time and my patient satisfaction. The Myday Toric features the same optical lens design features as the most prescribed monthly replacement Toric lens on the market. Myday Toric now completely mirrors the Biofinity Toric's parameter range. To be clear, if you find the parameter in a Biofinity Toric, you can find it in a Myday Toric. This Toric lens design is multifaceted to ensure optimal visual acuity, lens stability, fit, and comfort. Its uniform horizontal ISO thickness and wide ballast band quickly orient the lens for better performance and simplified fitting. The Myday material is CooperVision's softest one-day silicone hydrogel lens and features Aquaform technology combining a unique balance of high oxygen permeability and natural wettability. The result is a highly breathable lens that keeps our patients' eyes looking clear, white, and healthy. So if you haven't started utilizing Myday Toric in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your CooperVision representative to get started. we've been watching the vision managed care plan space for you know two decades now of kind of watching the industry and seeing how things have been shaking out uh and you know there's a whole history there that we could go into about how we wound up here but uh and i'm happy to go into to some of that but uh, ultimately uh what jen described is you know we were kind of we're kind of in a modern day battle for the independent nature of the doctor patient relationship at this point uh you know, is there is there a sanctity to that anymore, or are we kind of servants of the person's plan at this point, and is the plan making the decisions about uh, what should or what does happen? So that's kind of where we are now. Um, no, happy to I, talk about more. Yeah, I think that's we got exactly there, where I'd like to go next. Is um, you know, I I um, I want to talk about the the because we could do. I mean, I could and I we could do episode after episode after episode discussing how we got to where we are from a managed vision care standpoint. And you and I may completely disagree about where we go from a standpoint of how do we look at a managed vision care. Jen, your point about, you know, just, just training students, teaching them about, um, teaching them about like, what are we talking about when we say managed vision care plan and X, Y, and Z. And, and actually um, it's kind of fun because, uh, one of my visions about, uh, I don't know, probably eight or nine years ago was to really create a course for students that would follow them from year one all the way into year four. So by the time they're done with, with school, it's not like, hey, I got three hours of billing and coding uh, and, and third party stuff in my fourth year. They know it. And actually, 
um, we have a school now that uh, is on board to that, that we've been developing for, which is applicable to any school that wanted to jump in. So the point is, is that day one uh, of their of their schoolwork, they are going to have access now to basically modules that will come to them over time. So the goal is that by the time that they get to fourth year, not only do they understand the nuances between 9-9 codes and 9-2 codes and the differences between managed vision care and medical care, and but they'll actually, the, the, the goal is that they're going to build how do they actually in, implement disease state management and comprehensive care. They're going to do that on their own. Like They're, they're going to know how to do that by the end. So they're going to come out of school with a lot more uh, understanding of those two things. And I only make that point because it is it has been um, it takes a couple visionary people at, at some schools where they where they see that like, oh, yes, we do need to. They know they know it's an issue. Right. But 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 students come out so well trained that uh, in the management of ocular disease and the management of patients, but the implementation of that in a practice if they don't have that really, if they don't have a mentor right now, if they don't have a mentor, then they're, they'll flounder. And that's why it's so important when you think about from a, from a regulatory and legislative standpoint, that uh, if, if the managed vision care plan owns that patient and the doctors who are coming out of school don't understand how to communicate about those differences and the nuances between the type of care that they need and understand how to implement those things, then they're going to flounder, and they're going to be, and they're going to, and they're going to be pushed in the wind for for the managed, big old managed vision care plans that are going to do what they want to do, and then the doctor's sitting here thinking, I just want to take care of patients, I just want to serve my patients, and then they get frustrated, and then they sell their practices, or they go to work for big conglomerates where they don't think they have to work for that, but they have zero control of everything else, and blah 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 blah. I mean, we could go on and on, okay? Uh, and I and I would, <laughs> I, I would pain myself because I'm on a soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I see that as a frustration all across the country. It's not just students; it's doctors, right? I mean, there's doctors that are my age that are completely burned out because they feel like they have no control. I talked yesterday to um, Paul Williams. I'm not sure if you guys know Paul, but I say yesterday it'll be uh, his episode will probably come out a week or two before your episode. But one of the things we we did a bonus episode also because we had just started talking on the back end about something else, and he's. Um, 60 years old, I think. And, and he said, I love practice, Chris. I don't want, I don't want to stop practicing. And I'm thinking, well, I've talked to a number of people, uh, who are 40, you know, I just turned 42 yesterday and they're in their forties or late thirties and they are done. I've talked to people who've been out for two years and they're not practicing anymore. And, and you're just like, what the heck is going on? This is crazy. So I say all of that to say, how tell me about this about the managed vision care plan uh, the managed vision care uh, legislation that you guys implemented how does that help with preventing burnout continuing independence i'll get off my soapbox <laughs> no it's all the stuff that we have to rein back every day too because we feel very much the same way and you know when you're teaching students about this complexity of managed care i think the other thing you're teaching them from an early point and some of what we've lost in the you know young generations vodies is what is the value of our care and how do you stand up for that and how do how do we value it and how do you allow other people to define the value of it and so i know the aoa has been talking about that and we've been really in tune to the message and how we um how we bring that to our doctors and then to the the public at large um it's, it's a big lift you know i think that we talked about preserving independent practice, but really our legislation does three key things. It makes sure that patients have access to the independent eye care doctor of their choice in their community. Um, I think it increases or maintains, allows the continuation of competition in the market. With the vertical integration and the massive consolidation of the industry, if you have a variance of small independent practices, mid-sized practices competing, it's good for the industry. It's good for healthcare costs overall. If you have one or two multi-billion dollar conglomerates providing all the care and setting the standard and setting the, the prices, which is where kind of the, it's integrated with the vision plan world, right? This consolidation, that's not good overall for the industry. And then a third thing is, like I said, proper valuation of care for the future. Otherwise, we're just headed in the wrong direction. 
And so Tommy can get into a few of the specifics of how the bill does that. I mean, there's like 19 or 20 different tenants. And we started with the base of our non-covered services bill, but we found out that creative companies found all kinds of ways around the broad laws that we had passed of thou shalt We've seen not that, yeah, control. across the country. Yeah. 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 Just really kind of ways that were, it was creative in a bad sort of way that we said thou shalt not control the practice of optometry, but what is the control of the practice? And we had to really go at defining that. And we'll probably have to be cleaning it up for the years to come too. Tommy? Yeah, that's exactly right. And we, we thought we had this issue kind of nipped in the bud in 2015. Uh, we, we passed uh, in three successive sessions, you know, piecemeal bills about non-covered services and lab choice. When we passed our lab choice in 2015, it actually had a another part of the bill that uh, we called the uh, kind of the vision plan bill of rights at that point or the um, uh it kind of mirrored our practice act uh, where, you know, a, a doctor had certain rights basically uh, uh, as they were practicing optometry. Well, we kind of mirrored that to say that, Hey, a vision plan or a managed care plan, uh, which in Texas, a managed care plan is both a medical plan and a vision plan in our statute uh, cannot violate the optometrist rights either. So we passed some really strong language in 2015 that said basically a managed care plan thou shalt not control the practice of optometry. And it said it basically in those words. Uh, but as Jen described, the devil was in the details. Uh, we passed that and then uh, we're, we expected the world to shift and change because you can't control the practice of optometry anymore. And then uh, the plans just look at us and say, well, that's great, Tommy, but uh, uh, what's control? You know, so that's the question that they asked back to us. What do you define as control? Well, so we, we spent a lot of years thinking about that. Uh, what is control? And uh, we, we came up with a long list of things uh, that uh, we define as control of, of optometry and control of the optometric practice. And those are kind of the provisions and tenants in our bill now. Uh, it's a lot to go through. Uh, Jen and I just did an hour-long webinar, you know, the other night to all of our doctors describing those. We, there's kind of 19 key provisions in our bill. Um, a lot of the major tenets of the bill or some of the bigger tenets of the bill involve the steering of patients uh, to uh, self-owned plans. So many of the, the vertically integrated conglomerates are making a concerted effort to push patients into the retail locations that they own or the doctor's offices that they prefer. Uh, so we banned that. Uh, we banned certain aspects of the tiering of doctors. Uh, and uh, tiering is not completely prohibited, but it's prohibited in instances where the tiering is happening because of how much uh, product you're buying from a particular company or what products you're choosing to buy, uh, what dollar amount, what percentage amount, things of that nature. Um, in the healthcare world now, you know, there are uh, – it is a big movement to describe um, – the possibility of tiering of doctors based on quality measures. I think, you know, in the, on the one hand, uh, you know, quality measures really could potentially give, um, and this is a lot what Paul and I were talking about is, is it could give uh, some doctors a huge and a meaningful leg up over other doctors. But uh, is the quality measure, I get to, I take care of glaucoma by doing no visual fields and no OCTs. And when I build glaucoma, I know we're talking about vision care, but when I build glaucoma, a glaucoma patient, I'm, I'm, my quality care is the patient has mild, you know, moderate glaucoma, but I'm just cheaper because I didn't do those tests or did I have just better outcomes? Um, and the same right. thing comes into like quality metrics. So that's a very hard one to wrap your mind or wrap, wrap, you know, maybe is quality care because I, um, and you know, we, we use, uh, companies in our office that we think are the best, right? We believe they're the best. Does that mean that that um, if uh, one one company own one one lens company owns a, a vision care company um, and they view their products as the best as being better quality? Well, and, and and actually, like you know, you could you could use just take just you know everybody's thinking about the 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 um, the elephant in the room. But the reality is, is take any company that you want, right? Any, any lens company, any frame company, big or small. And, and they obviously think their stuff is the best. So it could be, I mean, it could be any of those companies. And then, yeah. and then they, they, and then another, you know, uh, company that's might be a small managed vision care company, but they sort of align themselves with 
with one of these other entities. And they say, well, ours is the best. That's quality. So that's a real challenge to define. It is, yeah. It is. Uh, and, you know, uh, in, in Texas, our legislature grappled with this on the biggest of scales. You know, the the uh, the medical association and the insurance lobby, you know, uh, were, you know, trying to figure out what quality measures are uh, this particular session. And they didn't really come up with a, a solution. So and, you know, you look at CMS and what they're doing and, you know, it's still kind of an undefined space at this point. But really, like in, in optometry context, it gets even more complicated because not only are we providing medical care, but we're providing vision care. So, you know, in one context, quality care can be defined with, you know, outcomes from a medical perspective. But then when you're talking about how do you define quality when you're talking about a wellness, you know, routine eye exam, uh, for lack I know, of a better it's a, it's phrase, a horrible uh, phrase. It's a whole big so, thing. You know, <laughs> it's a whole, like, I, I've been right, obsessing right. over this. Uh, Kyle Cludie and I have been really obsessing over this for the last year of, we, we call it this comprehensive yeah. exam. The AOA talks about a comprehensive exam, but our managed vision care um, plans are are not looking at it the same way as we are trained to look at a comprehensive exam, and and we and we resist that temptation. I mean, on the one hand, and this is kind of another aside, but on one hand, you're almost like, well, look, I know the standard of care for us from the AOA is to do a comprehensive exam as defined by the AOA, right? As defined by by what we would think of, and even CPT, but your managed vision care plan, you're not paying me to do that, um, and so really it almost comes down to like this practice it's this philosophy of the practice like really understanding what when a patient comes in with a managed vision care plan what are they wanting from us how do we do that thing really efficiently and effectively and then communicate with a patient that yeah that's great but like there's all these other medical issues you've got and i and i'm not i can't do them under that because that's not what they are there for it doesn't mean you can't have that disease state and i can't right. see you for that it's just that's not yeah. what they're asking me to do. And thus, that's not what they think they're paying for. And, and right. we as a profession have to understand that. And when I've been in rooms with, with big wigs and in, like the biggest people in, insur in, in these insurance plans that you're talking about, and I'm sure you have as well, and I, and, and I have asked them, what do you want when a patient comes in with you know, glaucoma uh, or glaucoma suspect and comes in and, and uh, needs a new prescription for their glasses? What, what do you want me to do? And they'll say, what's the patient's chief complaint? And then you come to the chief complaint and they'll say, well, we want you to get you prescribe them the glasses, do their, their routine examination. And then right out of their words, you know what they say? Have them back for the, um, a more in-depth evaluation of their glaucoma risk. And none of us want to do that, but that's exactly what they're telling us to do, right? It's exactly yeah. what they say we're paying, they're paying us for. Right. Yeah. So anyway, it's another complex. side, but <laughs> it is complex. Yeah. No, it's, it is complex. It's, it's endlessly, endlessly yeah. complex, or it feels that way, Chris. But I think the most important thing as we make the sausage here and as this goes on for the next five, seven, ten years, and we set those standards, we cannot let someone else define it for us. Yeah. So we have to step up and be at the table and be loud and, and be present. Otherwise, the layman whose interests may be more profit and growth of an entity is going to be over us who care for patients every day. And so I think, and, and run small businesses. So as long as we're present, I have maybe this stupidly optimistic belief that we can get some, get to a place, but if we, if we lay docile and let it happen to us, it's not going to look good for us or for patients. So there's two issues I want you guys to hit on before we close this up. The first one is, um, does your does your law? I mean, I know the answer, but I want you to ext extrapolate on that. There's really two main issues that drive optometrists crazy related to managed vision care plans, and like you said, Jen, we've let it happen to ourselves, and and um, and I think that that puts this position of like, well, adversarial with this managed vision care plan. I don't view it that way, really. I I view it like they are part of the marketplace. They're part of what patients want. They're they're part of an access point for patients. It's what we do with those patients once they're in our practice that allows us to, to take the best care of the patient that we can. And as long as we have control of, over that, uh, that doctor, as long as the doctor-patient relationship is not interrupted, um, then, then it's up to us. It's incumbent upon us to be able to educate the patient uh, that's in our practice, et cetera, et cetera. 
So there's really two things that I think are are big burdens in people's minds. The first one is um, is that they're not getting compensated for the the things that they're doing appropriately for their services. The second one is what you've alluded to as uh, I want to have choice in where I can go to get access for different care, and that care in this case would be different products. So tell me about how that. Um, how that pans out in this bill. And if, if one does, isn't addressed, how do we address that? Yeah, I'll take the first one and Tommy can build on that. So the first way that we see it as making sure that proper valuation of care is maintained and that we have that ability to have that in the future is looking at um, specifically uh, how do you reimburse doctors that make choices for patients and how do you reimburse them differently? So are you penalized for making choices for a patient that you think is best? Well, that is outlawed in the bill. You can't, your reimbursement schedules can't be different for doctors that make different business decisions and purchase different amounts of product from plans per se, or different companies. Um, So that's one thing is leveling that playing field and letting patients make the decision and letting doctors and each individual practice set their own, their own prices. The other thing is, really tightening down on that non-covered services. So if you would like to provide a value service for a patient that's not under their plan and you and the patient decide it's right, then that practice by per market standard sets the price for that, not a plan that provides no reimbursement to the doctor. So specifically, if there's a covered service or product, um, it, it cannot, well, if there's a service or product provided by the doctor to the patient, it cannot be considered covered unless there's reimbursement from the plan to the doctor. And then it has to be at a significant value. It can't be at a value of a penny or, you know, five cents. And so those kinds of things will be important in maintaining that proper valuation of care and helping our doctors understand that, that they make those decisions with the patient. Tommy. Yeah. Ag- agree. And the second part of your question, Chris is, you know, about choice and access and, you know, really, it goes back to what you, you said a few minutes ago about, about the marketplace in general. Um, uh, obviously, choice is going to be maintained and access is going to be maintained when you have a robust marketplace of, of uh, people that provide this particular service. And just like you mentioned that, you know, doctors are leaving the profession or, or consolidating or, you know, choosing not to, you know, become small business owners uh, in, in ways that, you know, we haven't seen in this profession in its history. Uh, all those factors are leading to that consolidation that the conglomerates are taking advantage of. And in many, you know, locations around Texas, you know, there may be one or two or three, you know, practices in, in a in a mid-sized city. And, you know, when those particular practices sell or when they feel the need to sell or they're in a panic because their um their profit margins reducing or being reduced, you know point by point by point every year as they're watching their, their P and L they panic. And then, so ultimately what happens Well, they sell um, that particular town ends up having one place to go that's owned by this company. And then that's what you have uh, at the end of the day, you know, called a monopoly. So, you know, we're dealing with little mini local monopolies, you know, all across the country and, and, you know, small towns and mid-sized cities. And uh, that's being hastened by the actions of the managed care plans and then on the, the grandest of scale, like when you look at the U.S. market, you know, we're kind of dealing with a duopoly, you know, where uh, the two largest vision plans control 70 percent of, of the market and are steering over 200 million Americans, you know, into choices that they may not fully understand why they're making these choices. They just know that this is the cheapest or this is the only one around. So ultimately what our bill does is is takes all of the takes all of those dynamics and kind of shifts the conversation a little bit. The vision plans are going to have to kind of look at this holistically and decide who they are and what they want to be. So in historically vision plans were a plan. They were a benefit plan. Um, As competition arose between the two giants, uh, they, they felt the need to compete with one another. And then the optometrists that provide the service have become afterthoughts and they've devalued our services during that, during that competition process. So, um, is it good to have, you know, 70% of the market, you know, tied up and controlled by, by two companies? Is it good to have 
90% of the market controlled by the top four or five companies. That's what we're really dealing with. And, you know, from a provider perspective now, the TOA Texas, we've pushed back on that now. This bill is innovative. It's kind of, it shifts the conversation into making the plans decide, hey, you're going to have to treat the optometrist fairly at the end of the day if you want them to participate in the system. So that's kind of where the valuation of our services comes in. Uh, these are high profit mm-hmm. companies, you know, they, they make a lot of money and they're going to have to decide how to allocate that profit in a more responsible way if they want the system. Yeah, to I think it really levels. Yeah, go ahead, Jen. Well, so it levels the playing field for in-network providers, right? If you choose to take vision plans, you are not at a competitive disadvantage inherently by just wanting to be a small business that provides care to your patients and your small in your communities, which we have, you know, small and large in Texas. And I think at the end of the day, one of the protections the bill provides is um, specifically is immediate on electronic access to out-of-network benefits, which we saw clamped down on in a big way. And so if a if a business decides, if a practice decides that it's best for them to be out of network for, for plans, um, then they can do so. I think a lot of optometrists want to stay in and want, and needed these guardrails to be able to compete and provide for patients appropriately. But if you do choose that that's the best route for your practice and your patients, now you can help your patient utilize out-of-network benefits, which is really the standard for insurance and managed care. I mean, when you sign up for a medical plan, these are not out of these are not benefits that are hidden from you. Um, and so we we put that in the bill that the, for the mm. doctor and the patient, you have to be able to access those immediately online. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. So that's almost like you know, if if you were going to uh, liken, because I've never thought about it this way, but you're, if you're going to liken the um, existing model within managed vision care and hiding benefits. It's almost like the HMO model. Like we're going to make it so hard for you to see somebody outside of our network that practically speaking, you're never going to see anybody outside of our network. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, that's one of the frustrations in a lot of cases with an HMO. Uh, and now you're, you're making it in Texas a little bit more like a PPO network where, yeah, you have access, you might have, it might be, um, you know, we can control costs. You know, you're not going to have to spend more than your $10 copay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you choose to go outside of your network, we'll still cover those things. Um, there's just a little bit different mechanism and we can't control your spend as much. And you and I, you, you both and I know that, um, that the practicality, the practically speaking, you can probably deliver a patient out of network benefits for as much uh, and maybe even less than they can than they get with their in network benefits in many cases. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so between between that issue, you know, doctors are really going to have to look at their provider contracts. Uh, most doctors, sadly, don't even read them. They just kind of uh, think, "Hey, I need to be in this plan because you know, otherwise, I'm not going to be able to have access to these patients." But you're really going to need to look at those those contracts and decide if it's a good business decision going forward. It, I, I would say in the old days, yeah, you could just sign a contract and know that, the, that you know you were going to be able to uh, profit in your small business in a way that makes sense. But now that may not be the case anymore. You really need to kind of decide if the profitability of that plan is worth signing up for. Um, uh, additionally, uh, we had the issue where um, plans were still applying chargebacks to. Um, the doctor's reimbursements, uh, even when that doctor, like in Texas, was a is a lab choice state. So, you know, a doctor chooses to use the lab of their choice. Well, some of the plans, not all of them, but some of them were still uh, acting like they were the ones providing the cost of goods for the materials and still re- uh, um, subtracting those reimbursements from the or those amounts from the overall reimbursement. So I think we're the first state uh, in the country to ban uh uh, improper chargebacks when a doctor is opted out uh, of a particular lab that the plan is trying to encourage uh, the doctor to use. So there's a lot of innovation in the bill itself. Um, uh, I think uh, it's a, a bill that other states will look at and they'll uh, hopefully emulate some of it. They'll probably perfect some of it. Uh, uh, sadly, you know, when you're a first mover on a lot of these things, the you're also pay, the yep. first uh, person to get a response yep. from. Yeah. <laughs> And, and Chris, you and I have experienced that in the past with legislation. Uh, we, we've uh, we've led on a lot of uh, issues over the last ten years in this managed care space, and uh, since then, the 
different states have innovated. And that's kind of what the, the process is for. And uh, we have AOA, you know, working really hard on this now with the Doc Access Act, yep. you know, uh, on a federal level, we need the Doc Access Act so that the provisions of lab choice and non-cover services will apply to ERISA plans and not just, you know, uh, plans that are um, regulated by by states. So um, all of these factors taken in unison, I think if we have our state associations in the AOA all working on this managed care space, which I feel for the first time that there's a harmony going on around that, around this issue, uh, then I think we can make a real difference here. And I really think this system can continue. Jen and I both would say, too, that, you know, we we work with the vision plans uh, and we don't even consider yeah, them adversarial either. in many ways. It's uh, it's kind of it's. Yeah, I mean, we're. The practical, the, there's a the philosophical side of this that we've discussed, you know, during this podcast, but then there's the practical side of, Hey, how do we take care of these yeah. 300 million Americans basically? And, and 200 million of them have these plans and we want to work in unison and, and have cohesion with the plans that make sense, but we can't have the plans, you know, trotting on the doctor either and, and forcing them out of business or forcing them into compromising their ethics. Uh, uh, in terms of the doctor-patient relationship. Well, listen, that was, I, I don't know any better way to summarize that, uh, Dr. Lucas, than what you just did. So um, Dr. Deakins, Dr. Lucas, thanks so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. Um, you're going to get a lot of people reaching out to you. Where uh, where can they get a hold of you? The easiest way to contact Jen is just calling the TOA. You can Google the Texas Optometric Association and call the number. And, uh, and that'll, that'll get folks in touch with us. And, uh, uh, awesome. yeah, that's well, thanks way. guys for your time today. Thanks for all your hard work. I know we'll connect soon. Um, appreciate it.